The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. Uh, I'm going to start out by talking about what I went through yesterday, which was, I mean, is Disneyland the happiest place on earth? Let's be real. I, I, I mean, it's so ridiculously expensive to go now, number one. Um, I have, I feel like claustrophobic. There's so many people in that park. I can't ride half the rides because I get really bad motion sickness on certain kinds of like the virtual rides. I just, and then all we did, my husband makes us go so early because he wants to get the most bang for our buck. So we had to get up at seven. And then of course I'm like, I'm not leaving and getting at the park right when it opens. I need my coffee. We we probably got there at like 845. There was already so many people getting to the park and we leave at night. So you go on every ride you possibly can imagine going on. Um, and it's just a lot. It's a lot. I, I try to remember when I'm leaving. Oh, and the funniest part is when you leave the park, everyone's like honking and like cutting you off. So it's like 
the mentality of Disneyland is pretty funny. Like everything else. It's like, let me get there. Let me get there. And like everyone's pushing each other and trying to get around each other. And it just it's it's just like, what are we all in a rush for? I talk about this a lot. I might bring in Nathan Kepler, my guest. Nathan, have you ever been to Disney World or Disneyland? I know you're Canadian. Um, just wondering. Hi. Hi. Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, I have actually been. I have been to Disney World in Florida. Okay, is that right? Is yeah. there a Disney World there or yeah. Land or I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was younger. I must have been thirteen at the time, uh, and I was very oblivious to you know, what stress or anxiety or depression or you know some of those mental health issues that we later understand that we have in our lives. Uh, so I was that kid that was like, Hey, this place is amazing, uh-huh. right? but it was totally sensory overload. It's perfect for a child. It is not a perfect place for an adult. No. <laughs> and the funny, right? we make so many sacrifices part. to go with our kids. Uh, like it's for them for sure. And it's so expensive. Everything is expensive, but also the funniest part is when I know my husband is so tired and all we want to do is like sit for a minute. And so we, it's all the adults that get forced on, um, small world. You're just going on that. So you can actually like rest and close your eyes and there's like air conditioning in there, but the kids just love it. But the adults are like, get me out of here. I don't know. I'm torn about Disneyland. It's like one of those things where, you want it. You're so, I still love it. Every time I go, I can only do it in doses. And it's like, okay, we have like a good year until we have to go again. You know, it's like one of those things. And the best part about it, if you're watching your steps like I am, or, you know, you want to get your workout in, you can eat the worst, most unhealthy foods because you're going to walk like a good solid. We, I think we walked like nine miles yesterday. Then we ate badly. So anyway, oh, wow. we've all been put here for a reason, and we all deserve acceptance. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age, and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud and have been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out. From recovering to surviving and thriving, we all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. I would love to introduce you all to my guest. Nathan Kepler is a retired police officer. Uh, He also is currently a podcaster and he talks just like I do. He's very passionate about mental health his own mental health, and he specifically deals a lot with first responder mental health. So welcome, Nathan, to the podcast. I'm on, I'm honored and thrilled to have you on. Thank you, and thank you for the, the opportunity to sit and, uh, and have those very real and vulnerable, authentic conversations uh, in the connection that, that I'm looking forward to. Well, I, I first want to ask you, because you and I had kind of been playing, I don't even remember how we first connected, but we've been playing tag on recording. I got really sick, and then I had stuff going on. I'm finally on the mend. Um, but that illness that I had, whatever it was, it was just kind of like a really bad cold. It took me down, and it took me like a solid couple weeks. I'm still not 100%. But I love... I love what you do and I love that you kind of 
got out of what you were doing, which was obviously um, you were a police ma- police officer in Canada, uh, the Royal Canadian part of the Royal Canadian Mountain Police for 14 years of your life. And then you kind of shifted into doing what you're doing now and helping others and talking about mental health. And I'm always so happy when I have men come on because I feel like men, and you can talk to me about this as well, are the worst, and don't take offense to that, but the worst about talking about their mental health. And every time I have a man that's willing to come on and be real and talk about what he's gone through, it's like, hallelujah, the more that we can get men to talk about this, the better off we'll be as a society. Do you agree? I wholeheartedly agree. And I think this is a really important uh, time for men to recognize that one, we need to do this for ourselves, for our own mental, our own emotional health. And I mean, mental health is tied in with emotional health. It's tied in with physical health. It's tied in with spiritual health. So I never like to just look at mental health from just that plane of, hey, let's just talk about mental health. Because if you're not addressing your emotional health, your physical health and your spiritual health, well, then of course, you're going to have some kind of pillar that's a little bit weak and you're going to have maybe a little a bit of a mental impact there somewhere, right? The brain's that last defense mechanism that really is there to kind of help show you, okay, are the thoughts good or not, right? And if they're not, you got to do some hard work. And men, for for whatever reason, I mean, the term gets thrown out so often, emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence, right? And I think for men, I think I think we haven't done a great job of teaching our, our younger men uh, and raising them to be emotionally vulnerable. Uh, and and to, to beyond that, to feel the emotion. A hundred percent. To really feel it. And I'm right. And to sit with it and, yeah. and to let, sorry, and to, and to let men, you know, a dad sit with his son and get sad with him and mm-hmm. show him it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. You don't have to shut this down. We don't have to lock it down and be tough. Right. Mm-hmm. So my upbringing was very much that way where it was, Hey, we don't really show emotion. We don't talk about emotion. We don't really express ourselves emotionally. Uh, and it wasn't until much later on in life as a police officer where I started to see some really heavy stuff where the emotion now started, was really starting to build, even though I was trying to suppress it. So it was much like the beach ball, Megan, where I'm trying to push it down, trying to push it down below the water or the surface. And you can only do that for so long until all of a sudden, boom, it just, you can't hold it anymore and it's going to pop out and it's going to hit you square in the face. And now you've got an issue and that's, that's crisis, right? That's the full blown crisis that we enter into, but there's a beautiful lesson in that. And you really have to now start to engage with yourself and go, okay, I need to do this differently because it's, it's clearly not working. Well, I, it, that's was kind of, you kind of like led me directly into my next question, which is always tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your upbringing, but something I want to piggyback about what you said is so often, I, I mean, I even see dads, you know, where I, I'm a mom myself. Um, my yeah, one kid that's just turned nine, one's about to be 13 and the dads, you see them at the games and they're kind of like yelling at their kid, be tough, be this, be that. And at some point in life, it we're all human beings. I mean, the things that women have where I find we're, we're benefited in is that we are taught from a young age to talk about things. We're chat. We love to chat. 
We love to talk about our problems. We love to talk to each other and kind of like talk about like, oh, this, this, and this is going on. That's the best thing about being female. The worst thing is the jealousy and the mean girl stuff, which is totally separate. But men from a young age, young boys, we all see it. Dad's yelling at on the field. You miss a, a, a pitch or something. It's like they feel horrible about themselves. Don't cry. What's wrong with you? Get up. Do this. Do that. And that is like all that is doing is promoting long-term, like in my opinion, bottling your, your feelings up and could potentially lead to like really big problems. And I think that's a huge issue in our society. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm not the one that learned this. Uh, well, I did learn this lesson on my own, but there's, there's been a lot of people who have kind of shaped kind of in my knowledge base now, kind of through what I've gone through in life. Uh, Dr. Gabor Mate is one of them. He's up here in Canada mm-hmm. and he's phenomenal, right? And I mean, if you take the example of the child that's being yelled at on the field or in any situation, you know, that parent that's telling them, Hey, you're a failure. You're a failure. You're not doing it the way I want you to. What are you doing? And why? And what kind of cost is that? Like, is it really necessary? Like, can you not just be there to support that kid to the best of his abilities and just love him for who he is? So it's it's kind of interesting because I'm starting to see a lot of men now kind of really challenge themselves and look at how they parent. Uh, and especially men like that have had my upbringing or my, my similar childhood experiences. Uh, and I see also other men too that haven't had those experiences and they're, they're actually thriving as a parent. They're very emotionally engaged and it's very cool to see men kind of take on a different role now, uh, as opposed to kind of that more caveman approach of mm-hmm. men go off to hunt and they, they don't have emotions and the women stay home and they do all the, the cooking, the cleaning, or, you know, they they keep the family together and they're the emotional teachers, right? Or the spiritual teachers and the men really aren't involved. So yeah, it's cool to see kind of that shift happen. And I don't know if it really is happening or it's or I'm just seeing it on my end or if it's kind of a global thing and we're starting to wake up to this different concept of being, especially for men. But I hope it happens. I really do. I think now from it's a I think it's a gener sorry to talk over you. I think it's a generational thing. Just like mental health is really become since COVID come to the forefront, I hope, but our suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. Um, especially I, I, I know in the United States and I would assume Canada would be similar, but also for men. So the suicide rates in men and young boys is at like its peak. And, um, so I had to, I had to just kind of point that out because I think it's so important and I do want to hear about your upbringing. Like, were you told that you have to be tough? You kind of touched on it in the beginning. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's always kind of hard because you don't want to jump on a podcast and be like, here's all my dirty laundry from mom and dad, right? Because yeah. <laughs> they're still around and they still, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? So it's, it's such a bizarre experience to to really dive into what your childhood experience looks like. But for me, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it this way. Before before I had really understood the trauma that I had uh, was going through as a police officer and had been through, I really looked at my childhood as, you know, it was very healthy. And it was very normal. And there was nothing that ever really happened to me that was, you know, that was something that may have left an impact on me. So I I had this kind of inner denial state of looking at my childhood and just saying, no, I don't want to look at it. I think it was okay. So I kind of told myself a bit of a lie, right? And I think that's really common for a lot of us. 
But eventually in life, we get to a point where we finally hit this crossroads where we finally see kind of either the anxiety or the depression or some of the mental health things that might be surfacing, right? Whether it's the cyclical thought, the mind is racing and we don't know why and we can't control it. And we start to ask those deeper questions. Why, why am I the way I am? And I think when I started to really, you know, focus on, okay, the body was telling me finally there was some very significant warning signs of, hey, the stress is starting to really uh, grow and we really need you to figure out your stuff, you know, and I've, I, that was when I was like, I don't really know how to handle a lot of this. And as a man, I didn't do a great job of it. So I actually, at that point, I had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress by that point, And I was still working as a police officer and still doing quite well. But by that point in the journey, um, the trauma had layered in enough layers of just really difficult, emotional, uh, emotionally complex um, things within that I actually turned to addiction uh, in order to try and cope with some of those things. Now, we talk about the relationship of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. uh, later stage adult trauma, addiction. These are all very real things that happen to us. And there's no shame to talk about this. That's the other thing I like to see now uh, amongst people that are out there talking in this community is that addiction happens and they're starting to kind of look at addiction differently with less stigma and more awareness and acceptance and go, Mm -hmm. okay, addiction is actually a very real uh, human issue. And that person is suffering so much in their pain and suffering, their trauma, whatever the case is, that they no longer know how to cope. So what do they do? They have to try and cope the only way they know how, and that's to numb out, right? To kind of quell those big emotions down. And they can get very big. Uh, I've seen some horrible stuff in my time. So, you know, those emotions were always there and eventually just got to a point where I couldn't hold that beach ball under the surface anymore. So it was then when I finally acknowledged in addiction that I needed help and trying to gain the trust now to rely on others for that help was another segment of the story that's very hard for us to kind of, you know, eventually manage and own and and be willing to be vulnerable and take that first step from the abyss, the mental fog that can happen. But I reached out uh, to my employer, which isn't common for a police officer to do. And I said, I need to go to rehab. Like, I really need help here. I'm really struggling. And it was then that I finally looked at my childhood trauma. And that was the first time I really looked at my childhood trauma. And I was like, okay, no, actually, I I have been through some stuff. There's been some very significant things that have happened to me. And I won't go into the fine details of it. But I mean, you really need to, you need to be able to look back at your childhood if you're hoping to heal Mm-hmm. and have that piece of clarity there of what it looks like so you can identify you know what those issues are years later because the trust issues will be there uh, the preemptive thoughts will be there you know the response or the fight or flight response will happen you'll have those triggers within so you need to figure out a way so that you can teach yourself to be safe in environments when you normally would be getting triggered right so very complex But eventually with time, I was able to look at my childhood and actually acknowledge what had happened to me and sit with those emotions and allow them to finally be processed years later as a 37-year-old man. Let me ask you this, and not to like go into the childhood trauma if you're not comfortable with that, but I do. So you said something about my parents still being alive. My mom is still alive. She's I've actually had her on. She's gone through her own like a lot of trauma, but I I think what something you pointed out, and before we go into your story of you know getting into the becoming a police officer and all the things you went through, but it 
it is so true. All of these things are connected, right? And I had somebody on pretty recently and they they said um they were talking about addiction and how there's such a stigma against it. And the thing is 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 your childhood some one person's trauma is different from another person's trauma, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be um, in my case, my sister died in front of me when I was two. To somebody else, it could be something like you took a, bi- a big fall. I'm just trying to give an example. And um, and you've never forgotten it. And it's always kind of stuck stuck with you. Whatever the trauma was. Trauma is trauma, right? And it's different for everybody on different levels. But that little seed of addiction I think is really what it is, is it's, it's, it's the escaping of working on your, yourself and becoming the whole you, right? And in my case, um, I took re pretty recently a pretty long break from alcohol because I started to go, well, I'm here. I am every week talking to people about, you know, my mental health and how great I'm doing or interviewing other people. And I'm kind of lying in some ways because there I was like down doing the mom thing and downing a bottle of wine. But then it turned into after COVID downing a bottle of wine by myself every night, um, you know, to get through like having to do all my stuff, like feeding the kids or whatever it is. But it was that little thing in my head that was like, you know what, Megan, you really don't want to fully work on yourself. You really don't want to fully do the work. And in in therapy, whatever you believe in, we're in my case, I believe we're all here for a very short period of time. We're given these lessons and these tests. And and if you do turn to like alcohol, drugs, I talk a lot about it on the podcast, whatever it is, no judgment, no judgment on any of us. We all are here to like work through our process, work through our trauma. But I appreciate what you said that there shouldn't be such a stigma against it because I'm sure what you saw and what you were trying to process from childhood, it all makes sense why people turn to the things that they do. You know, and I just had to say sorry for that long-winded story, but I really had to say that. No, and I appreciate that. And I mean, it, it hits me with emotion and emotion that I just kind of let swell of. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get hit in that moment of just, just some some very generic kind of sadness that swirls in the body. Because for men, like we really are alone when it comes to how we try to process our emotions. And we're mm-hmm. not told or taught how to do this. And we go through some stuff in life. And then we we change because we feel we have to, right? We might become uh, we might become or have issues with the ego, right? Or anger yeah. issues, or or whatever the case is, and you're just not in a state of peace, which is so unfortunate, right? Because you you're right, we're only here for you know a very relatively short amount of time, sixty years, roughly, and then your your health is really starting to fade by that point, right? Unless you're doing the right things. Now you can milk that till 80, no problem. 90, we can live for quite a some time, but really when you factor in the good years of life, when you can really go hard and really enjoy and really push yourself, 
it's a small blip in the spectrum. So you deserve to do the hard work for yourself to really enjoy life and not have this, this path of misery or, you know, to be defined by your childhood trauma. And that's the beautiful thing that I've learned about, you know, talking about my mental health is a lot of the stigma that I actually perceived was my own personal stigma about sharing my story and how was how it was going to be received. Not until finally I jumped off the ledge without wings did I start to see a lot of even my friends who would have never been, you know, caught dead talking about this stuff. They were like, hey, Nate, can I, can I connect with you? Can I talk to you about this stuff? Like, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And they were like, I feel the same way. And I'm like, yeah. Like, let's talk about it, man. Right. Like, let's, it doesn't always Absolutely. have to be we like, all let's, feel go, this stuff. let's go to like a bar and just, and I'm not trying to put labels on people, but I am, I have been with my husband for a very long time and we met young and, and sometimes getting him to talk about his, like what, how he's feeling is like pulling teeth. Whereas I'm just like an open book. And then I, I'm like, well, what did you talk about when you went out with your friends? Oh, we just watched football. And then we, you know, like, we don't talk about that stuff, Megan. And I'm like, but why? Why aren't you talking about that stuff? And I'm not saying he never does. Like, he definitely has his best friend since kindergarten. I know they can get deep. I know that he, he if he wants to, he'll do it. But it just seems to me so unfair. It almost makes me, I'm glad I don't have a boy because that boy would be like telling his feelings 24 hours a day like my girls do. Because I just think they have to, They it, it has to be a processed thing, you know, and you have to work through it. Do you mind me shifting a little bit and asking you how you got in, how you decided to become a police officer? Oh boy, here we is go. That, is that a long? <laughs> this is a no. This this is a great question. It's one okay. of those like really vulnerable questions, though. Uh-huh. I think honestly, like I think as I reflect on my childhood and I probably tried to hide a lot of the pain that I had as a child, right? And really kind of start suppressing. That was kind of the overview theme of my life, right? I didn't really know how to manage all these really big emotional things as a kid that I went through. And I think for me, I mean, that ushers in this sense of wanting to control now right? Control your environment. And I was learning at a very young age, if I control my emotions and I suppress these things, then it should work out. It wasn't the right step, but it was the only step that I knew how to take. So as I'm sitting there as a young boy, kind of navigating through life, I I grew up in a very small town in a Northern community in Alberta. And I had some really positive interactions with the local cops that were RCMP Mounties uh, at the time. And I always kind of looked up to them. I thought, man, these guys are amazing. They're out there serving the community. They're doing some amazing things. They're authoritative. You know, they must have amazing control in their lives and all this discipline and all these different things. So I was very drawn to that structure. But at the same time, it was all the things that I lacked in my life that I was drawn to, right? All of those things that were usually drawn to in those that first initial stage of life. Um, so that was kind of how I saw that and pursued that from a young boy moving on. Um, and I think, I think for me, 
also knowing the the level of pain and suffering that had come from some of those childhood things, I also didn't want to see anyone go through that as well. So I thought, what better position than to become a cop and try to help others not to go through this kind of stuff. So I really admired that position on that, you know, whole service to your community. Uh, but then again, that also begs the question too, you know, I was very geared to outwardly serving others, but I was also horrible at serving myself, right? So it's mm-hmm. such a, a unique thing for me to be drawn to. Uh, but I did get in as a police officer and I, I did have a fantastic career. Uh, I think just as time went on, I really started to see what stress and trauma was creating within the body. And I eventually had to make that decision for myself to leave and, and I don't have any regrets at all. But what what kind of like were you a detective? What kind of work did you do? And is it and if that's a stupid question, if there's a difference between Canada and I don't understand what I'm talking about. So explain what kind of work actually you were doing when you were in the in the uh, the police the police yeah as a police officer sounds so dumb i'm trying to understand (laughs) what do you call they're called mounties correct we're called mounties we're called members we're called police officers you can call us whatever because i feel really weird i'm like am i offending him by calling him a policeman like i'm so confused by it and it's so if i sound weird it's because i'm like what is the proper way to address you kind sir (laughs) so anyway so you decided what 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 branch if you will, did you go into, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So, I mean, the RCMP is kind of a unique body in that it's a federal policing organization, very kind of similar to, I guess, maybe the FBI, right? It's kind of that overreaching federal level. They do some big stuff. Uh, But up here, we actually were a blended uh, kind of approach to policing under that umbrella. So if you take like, Let's say Seattle, for example. Seattle has, you know, municipal police officers in that city. They join Seattle. They could become a police officer. They can do many different things in that city as a police officer, a detective. They can get into supervisory roles. They can do homicide, drugs, all these different things, right? The RCMP is kind of similar, but we just were a little bit bigger and we get to go more places. So you can actually get posted anywhere in Canada as an RCMP Mountie uh, or member. And so my first posting was uh, a uniformed police officer in Whistler, British Columbia. Whistler's a beautiful place, absolutely amazing. Uh, and I did general duty duties there for four years. So going to calls, uh, supporting the community, enforcing traffic laws, doing some drug work up there, making sure drugs were getting you know taken off the streets and people were getting arrested and held accountable, uh, helping people in domestic violent type of situations, kind of the full gamut police, you know, community mm-hmm. approach. You're there, you're, you're there to invest in the community. Uh, from there, I went on to a plain clothes, so no longer in a policeman's uniform, just in regular clothes. I went on to a drug unit uh, in the lower mainland here, uh, which was a provincial unit. So we were kind of looking after Vancouver and a few of the other outlying areas and more of a provincial or state kind of approach to policing for drugs specifically. Uh, and then from there, I moved on to federal level policing where I joined a, a federal serious crime 
uh, team where we actually did a whole bunch of different stuff ranging from like, you know, the protection of important people. So VIP work, um, all the way over to drug work, to border security, to a bunch of other stuff that I won't talk about because it's a little bit more sensitive. But, mm-hmm. you know, we had a really cool spot there, uh, or at least I did when I was working there. And I, I really did enjoy it. And I got to see a really well-rounded approach to kind of what policing looks like in many different areas. Did you, like, you don't have the same kind of um, issues, obviously. I hate to bring this up, but with shootings and um, obviously... I would assume, and you tell me, correct me on this, but the drug issue coming into the United States, what, tell me a little bit about that. Were you dealing with crime a little, just, it's not to the extent that we see every day. I happen to, you know, have had quite a few shooting victims that have come on my podcast, which is very difficult to see, um, you know, over this past weekend. And I hate to be, I'm going to say this right now, just a little, but there's been 39 mass shootings in the United States in January alone. It could be higher. That was as of yesterday. And I'm very passionate about this subject. Um, and one was one uh, man who happened to take his own life for the Monterey shootings. I live in, in like the outskirts, the beach cities of Los Angeles. He was, that van was, was found five minutes away from my house. So when we talk about these things, it hits very close to home and I hate to sidetrack this conversation, but I'm just curious your thoughts and what your thoughts just having been, you know, worked in as a police officer, what you think about that and, and, and what your thoughts are just being, you know, I know that you don't have these issues in Canada and we do, and it's confusing to me like how how it's different can you kind of just touch on that briefly yeah and again this is this starts to get into kind of uh, a very big question so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it glosses over like politics and ideologies and all of these different things right so it's it's such a unique question but I mean, just to paint a picture, uh, out in the East Coast, not too long ago, there was someone who, uh, who gained access to a few illegal guns, and I think he killed 26 people, including a cop, uh, a few years ago. So those things do happen in Canada too, as they well, do. unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, okay. but they're not. You just they're don't, not. As you don't hear about common. it. Like, they're not as common. Okay. And and right. and also, right. you, ha- to not to get political. I mean, but I will maybe just. For my own audience get political a little bit that it shouldn't be about politics but that's just me um you have different laws in place so this kind of stuff doesn't happen we have our approach to firearms and even our pro- our approach to firearms has always been very regulated and very strict and uh i can't really say like i have a great knowledge though to compare our laws to say your laws and specifically mm-hmm. to each individual state because i think they change with each state too right whereas yeah. ours are very much more of a federal approach on gun legislation where you know that federal body kind of mandates what you're allowed to do or not do right storage transportation where you can go to use a gun what's what's allowed to be used where it's allowed to be used how much ammo you can have uh, restrictions on magazines like we're now getting into like a very complex thing i.e politics right 
So, but for me as a Canadian, you know, to remove my police officer hat or retired police officer hat and look to you guys. Yeah, I do see some of those issues in the news right now. We hear about how kind of the approach to gun gun laws are changing. And I think they're strengthening, which is a good step in the right direction because mm-hmm. one school shooting is one too many. Mm-hmm. Right. Children do not need to go through this period. We do not need to have this kind of thing happen in life. Uh, so whatever we're doing right now, I think uh, for for Canada, I'll speak on Canada loosely. Uh, we do have some very serious incidents, gun incidents. Um, so we're trying to change our laws right now. I don't necessarily agree with some of the changes, but they're trying their best to change it. So it's in a healthier place. And the same goes for the states, too. I think we need to see some growth there. Right. So that these things do not happen. Uh, and there needs to be a little bit more layered approach to, to like, you know, checks into people. Are you allowed to have a gun? What is your, what is your, what does your life look like? Do some of those deep checks. So at the core of all of this though, it's about mental health because 95% of these shootings are based on people having not the correct mental health or mental health stability, um, and I'm and I'm wondering, obviously, in the cases that you're dealing with, it's, it's got to be along the same lines, which all circles back to what we're talking about today, which is mental health and what you kind of went through. So I'm sorry to kind of sidebar that conversation, but I was curious because I'm always curious every time I have somebody that comes on in a different country. I kind of do touch on that because I want to. I'm it's out of my own curiosity to know like. How are things different? Why is it like that? I understand a lot of it stems from politics, but I want to ask you when you were, you know, dealing with all these different areas of the law, um, how did you get to the point not to skip ahead, but where you were like, wait a second, like I, I need, I'm starting to have issues with addiction. Like, I think I'm having some issues. Is it because of like a specific incident that took place? Or was it just like the overall um, hard life of seeing all of the things that you do see? I'm curious to know that. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D designed for serious allergy suffering. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable. 
with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, so I'll break it down this way. I think I think it's really important to understand there's almost three kind of layers to where kind of PTSD can come from. There's your traumatic experience, which we all experience in life, right? We're going to experience roughly, I think it's one to five traumatic events in our life. Uh, and that, I don't think that's including our childhood experiences either. Uh, for police officers, you can you can go through anywhere between a hundred to a thousand traumatic incidents in the course of your career, even more. Like I, there was many days where I went to multiple traumatic calls, like very deep, hard calls where you know there was loss of life and sexual abuse and you know domestic violence and threats. You know where I had to protect myself. I was under attack or almost being killed. Right. And those are just incredibly hard miles. And those are abnormal situations that normal people, i.e. humans, and humans are police officers, are going to have to do. So for me, it was never uh, it was never one incident that kind of happened to me, but just this kind of overreaching, I just had too much trauma in my life. And I think over time, you know, the body was starting to show me very early on, probably within the first year of service, like, hey, Nate, here's a little warning sign for you. I remember the day I stopped dreaming when I was like when I would lay down to sleep. I had no dreams anymore. And I remember waking up and I was like, this doesn't feel okay or normal. I'm not dreaming at all. What does this mean? And as you talk to other people, they're like, oh yeah, I actually went through that too. You know, in the very early stages of kind of starting to go down that path of becoming unwell. Now you fast forward years later and, you know, you're really starting to struggle emotionally or with connection or you're facing social isolation issues or you're starting to see that the mind is, you know, uh, not handling stress well and your cyclical thought is kicking in. Uh, You might have anxiety, right? Your sweaty hands and you're always nervous and you don't feel safe. So it was a very slow burn from about, I would say, year, you know, when I first started uh, I think I was diagnosed. So I started policing when I was in uh, in 2007, sorry. And then in 2014, I was diagnosed with PTSD. But within the first few years of policing, I was like, something's happening here. There's a very slow change. Uh, and that was the impacts of the trauma. 
and the trauma continued with the job until until the day I left. Uh, now, the other interesting part of this, too, is something that's starting to be spoken about a little bit more, sanctuary trauma, which is also kind of part of like the logs that would get thrown on the fire to contribute to, say, PTSD. So in sanctuary trauma is kind of this, this thing where when we get hurt, we look to someone or something for support. And when we look to, like for a police officer, for example, if you go to some really hard calls and you go back to the office and you try to connect with someone that you're working with and say, hey, can I talk for a second? Like, I just went to some really messed up stuff. And usually that person's, you know, got his own stress and all of these different things. You're probably going to be met with a, hey, man, sorry, like, no. And mm-hmm. like you're gone, right? So you're on to the next thing because you don't have time to connect. So even some of those moments where we try to get support, you know, casually or start to dip our toes into, hey, I need to talk about this. uh, If you're met with any kind of resistance or a a non-supportive environment, that can also be very, very difficult to handle. And I think for me, like the trauma was definitely an aspect of something that was starting to form my PTSD. But at the same time, a lot of times when I was trying to reach out to get help or figure out what's going on, there just wasn't the right supports there in place, right? So now you really feel alone. And that's a horrible part of this recipe too. Now you take yourself beyond that and some of those experiences that happen to you. There's also this part of the moral compass that we have within and if you're asked as a police officer to do something that goes against your moral compass, that can also be very hurtful as well. And it's but really important to do you also think, sorry, but do you also, that to me, this seems so much like, and I've never really thought about it this way, but just it's it's very similar to how somebody goes off to war. You know, I mean, my my husband's dad was in Vietnam and... You know, I know like to this day, he he still has memories and things. But what you said about not dreaming, that's so interesting. It's so I've never thought about that or heard that before, just because you've probably become so numb to things that you're like, your brain just cannot handle dreaming anymore, right? Well, and the interesting thing that happens too with with PTSD is you eventually embark on this whole uh, educational journey of what is PTSD. And at first, I really looked at PTSD. It was something that happened just in the mind, right? The intrusive thoughts, some of the nightmares, uh, the anxiety was being caused because the mind was unwell, right? And I really looked at PTSD that way. And I remember when I went to rehab, and this was the first time I learned about this, and this was an incredible story. And, and the, the the man that I was sitting down with, he's like, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here to fix all of the things that have happened to me. They're, in, they're still in my head. And he said, well, newsflash, it's actually not in your head. And I'm like, well, then where is it? Where's the issue? And he's like, it's in your body. I'm like, where? He's like, in your organs, in your muscles, in your cells. The trauma is in your body. And I'm like, I don't understand this concept at all. And he's like, yeah, no problem. He slid me over a book. Uh, Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger, beautiful book. The first little bit of it is where like the most amazing parts of it exist. Have you read this book at all, Megan? I haven't. I'm going to though. Yeah. And it talks a lot about trauma in such a beautiful way. And the story that I'll relate to you and your, uh, your the people that are going to listen to this uh, so that it really kind of drives the point home as fast as possible uh, is that if you take, and this happens for us too, human beings, if you take a, a gazelle and a, and a tiger in the environment where a gazelle is not under threat, that gazelle is very calm. He's walking around, he's eating, 
he's doing his thing. He might be mating, making babies, having fun, living his life. There's no stress, right? His body's functioning really, really well. There's no threats. Everything's functioning the way it should be. As soon as that gazelle, though, starts to feel or uh, detect some kind of threat, i.e. the lion, his body now starts to dump out adrenaline and a bunch of different hormones to prep the body for, okay, you now hear something, you see something, you feel something, get ready. Your body's going to need to get ready to do something, either fight, flight, or freeze. So that gazelle naturally isn't a fighter. It's going to run, you know, 10 times out of 10, unless it can't, right? Uh, That gazelle then gets this massive surge of energy, that dump, that adrenaline dump, it then takes off. Now, if the gazelle can get away from that animal, i.e. the the tiger, and get to a place where he's like, okay, everything's okay now again, I'm, I'm safe. He stops and he shakes almost violently, just shakes like those. And you, and you've, you've experienced that in your life too with the body where the body just shakes and you don't really know what that is. And it's weird and it's shaking, it's shaking. That's the body trying to get all this stuff out. But a lot of times what we do with trauma is we just suppress the hard emotion and we don't find a safe place to go to and shake and physically get it out and then follow it up with a, I need to talk. I need to connect with someone and get this out. We just move on with our day. Oh, that is that's trauma. Amazing. Trauma yeah. is in the body. Yeah. So, and that's when, if you don't deal with trauma that registers in the body, all the adrenaline and the cortisol and all this stuff being stored in the muscles, because the muscles remember this stuff too, right? We're one big organism. If we don't address this stuff, you know, the body's always going to feel not safe and not well and all that junk, right? So, of course, the mind's going to be going, hey, the body keeps telling us something's going on when you should be safe. There's your mental health issues right there. It all starts from the body and the emotions. And it, and it, and it starts piling on and piling on. I, I wonder, did you ever get, did you suffer? I personally suffer with panic attacks. Thankfully, I'm doing really well these days, but I always know they're kind of like lingering somewhere. And it just takes one thing to know that I may be in, about to have one. Did you? How did you kind of get to like a boiling point where you were like, okay, I need to stop working. I need to go talk to someone. I, I like, was there a point where you went to rehab and you just got out? Tell me about that. Yeah. So again, a bit of a slow burn. And I do talk about this in depth on my podcast, but I'll quickly gloss over it. Uh, by the time that I was diagnosed in 2014 with PTSD, and it was pretty severe at that point, but I went on medication and things seemed to kind of stabilize for a bit and I was able to keep working. Uh, I went through something at work where uh, a boss actually was having some immense struggles. He didn't know that he had post-traumatic stress uh, and didn't know that he was in addiction himself in that moment. And uh, he charged me one day and it almost turned into a fight. And I remember that was the first time in my life where as a cop, I no longer felt safe at work. Mm. And that's where my panic attacks started, right? I could handle going out on the street and not feeling safe because I had the right tools to, you know, to look at a people and assess them and look at their hands and what's going on here. And I have the training to kind of deal with all that. But when it happened, when that happened at work, that's when I was like, whoa, what's the body doing here? And that's when those panic attacks for me started. And I mean, they fast forward over the next year, like 
I didn't, I didn't get the support that I needed at work when I came in. I had to step forward and say, hey, there's a real problem here with this supervisor. We need to take action here. This is what just happened. Everything happened so slow and there was investigations and people didn't want to mm-hmm. touch this event. And, you know, just that sanctuary trauma, right, which compounds the trauma. And, you know, there's also a moral injury in there as well, where I'm, I'm literally inside. I'm screaming at the RCMP being like, why aren't you there to support me? Why aren't you doing something for me? I've put my life on the line, right? So these are the events that really impact us. And we can take those kind of global lessons for whatever you're going through in life, and you can apply them to your life. You don't have to go through the same thing that I went through. But I'm sure as I talk about this in this way, you probably look at yourself and go, Oh, maybe this is where my panic attacks come from. This is why they're happening to me because you don't feel safe. And that's what the body's doing. It's telling you it's, it's hitting the alarm every time it triggers a panic attack. Um, so at that time when the panic attacks started, they were getting worse. They were getting worse. The medication wasn't working anymore. And I started to explore medical cannabis. Because at that time in 2017, we were moving towards legalization up here in Canada. And there was a lot of information coming out about how medical cannabis actually helps to treat PTSD, depression, anxiety. So I had a chat with my doctor and I was like, hey, is this a, is this a thing I should explore? He knew where I was at, how things were getting much harder. I was even having panic attacks at home in like non-stimulating environments. I could be sitting on the couch in complete silence and have a panic attack and have to run to the bathroom to vomit. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask you, because people have panic attacks and they look different for everybody. Mine personally are like, I, I feel like almost like my like my body shuts down. Like in my head, I go, oh my God, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And I think my body is literally about to die. And then the refrigerator like starts back up. That's what mine look like. What do yours look like? Because they can look like all different kinds of things. Or when symptoms. It, yeah. I, there, it's almost like a, like I look at it like in stages, right? I think when mm-hmm. I first started to really experience panic attacks, I already had this foundational layer of just anxiety where I just, my hands were always clammy and I was always warm and I would get more warm when I felt like things weren't going right, which was a weird threat detection thing that the body was going through. But as time went on and I went through this, uh, this other traumatic event at work where I get charged and there's almost this fight, that's when the body really started to like pick up on little sounds. Like I was hearing sounds differently. They were a lot more crisp and clear. And it was almost like the body was really trying to, you know, what's out there in the world, right? That's going to be an an issue for you or or a threat. Um, So there was, it was almost like this heightened state, uh, which was also physically exhausting too. Because then you go home and you're tired and you crash on the couch every day when you come home from work right? Which is not good. I had young kids at the time and I couldn't be there as a dad, right? I was so exhausted, so crippled with exhaustion and fatigue because the body's just in this constant state of trying to detect all these threats. So I started to see all these different things happening to myself and the panic attacks continued to the point where like my performance started to deteriorate at work. And I was very open with uh, my supervisor. I said, Hey, I said, I can't take on as much. Like, I just can't move this quick anymore. Like, I'm really having to slow down here. Things are starting to overwhelm me, things that normally didn't overwhelm me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because now for the first time in my life, I was actually starting to set boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. So I was starting to learn some of these very crucial lessons, right? And you needed boundaries at Disney World, right? Hey, I'm not Mm -hmm. doing this. I can't, right? I just can't. Not a bad thing. So as time continued on, even with that, um, those panic attacks went to a point where 
I still wasn't getting the right help or talking about it the way I should have been. And I wasn't getting the right supports at work. Ali and I, this was part of my issue too. I wasn't good at asking for it too, because that happens with men in our, in our lives. Uh, the one time I had the most intense panic attack was when I was sitting at a computer and there was nothing happening around me. And it was like my eyes all of a sudden went into like that tunnel vision where they could only focus on a tiny little pinpoints on the screen. And my body all of a sudden became so hot. It was uncomfortable. It was like somebody had just turned up the furnace to like 60 degrees. Uh, I had ringing in my ears and I was shaking at my desk and all of a sudden my body, like my stomach would flipped and it was like, Kate, we're going to actually get sick here. So the body had a very strong reaction with nothing going on around it. I ran to the bathroom made sure I could take care of what I needed to take care of. And I came back to my desk and I sat there for a moment and I thought, you know what? This is that canary in the coal mine moment for me in life where if I don't stop right now, I'm going to end up dead from a heart attack. And I don't know how I knew that, why I felt that, but that whole experience to me felt like I was dying in that moment. The heart rate was going, the body just felt like it was just shutting down from stress. And it was very clear to me that I was now going on stress leave, something I had been kind of resistant to for quite some time. And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm off. I'm going to get help. I had a meeting with my supervisors, I think a few days after once I felt a little bit better. Uh, and I just said, this is what I went through. I'm going to get help. And they were incredibly supportive. They're like, hey, we've been there. Right. But again, this stuff's never talked about until it's too late. Uh, so that was kind of that first panic attack that eventually led me down a path of more and then trying to deal with it through medication, i.e. medical cannabis. And the medical cannabis worked like amazingly well for PTSD. But then therein is the crutch. Right. You then think that, oh, I'm just going to use medical cannabis and I don't have to go to group therapy as much. and I don't have to talk about my feelings because that's hard work. And, you know, it turns, all of a sudden in, you start it to, turns into another Band-Aid and they've done it turns into know, another Band-Aid. Yeah. And there's all kinds of studies like, you know, one person's like, this is like really bad for you. You know, there's been studies about what cannabis does to you. So I, I won't go into that. But, um, you know, when you're in these situations, which m mind you, mine was different, but I I had such debilitating panic attacks that I thought I was dying. I had to leave work too. Um, and I went to, this is a crazy story, but I go to a psychic and I love him. His name's Tim Braun and I've gone through a lot of loss in my life. So he's told me things that nobody would know. Nobody could tell me. So I really believe in him. He's been on the podcast and um, he's, he looked at me and he said, if you keep doing what you're doing and you don't do what you're supposed to be doing, which is what I'm actually doing now with my life, you are going to die. You're going to die of cancer. You, I already see it. You're not supposed to be doing what you're doing anymore. And when I kind of like realized that and I got to the place, which it sounds like you might have been into where you go. I'm supposed to be here doing something else with my life. And, and for you and I, we both talk to other people about their mental health and like, how can we change the world and better it? And I just, I have to tell you that to be able to relate and get to that place where you go, I don't need to live like this anymore. Like, it's almost like, it's almost like 
kind of makes me emotional, but it's like, I did my time. Like I did my time. And, and me, you know, being diagnosed with complex PTSD and understanding that I didn't have to have this life sentence for the rest of my life. And there were ways that I could be able to deal with it and talk about it and help other people and bring it to the forefront. That, that moment is life changing. And I don't know if it was like that for you too. And now what you're doing with your life is so impressive, but I had to kind of I had to piggyback on what you said. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. It's really important for us to, I think, recognize in our own journey. And I don't know, you know, when this happens for someone is, I think, largely dependent on what their life looks like and how they're handling all of that childhood trauma and all that stress as an adult. And you're very right in that, you know, I used to view stress as something that really wasn't a thing in my earlier years. And then as I'm getting older, I'm starting to see, no, the stress is a very real thing and stress can cause disease and disease. If you break the word down as a state of not being at ease, dis ease, right? So this stress can cause you to, not be at a state of ease and usher in or invite the body to start, you know, harboring different things, i.e. cancer or different diseases. And in order to stay healthy, we really have to look at, you know, how are we looking at our own health? What are we doing every day to make sure we're managing that stress? Are we doing the meditation? Are we going for the walks? Are we doing the breathing? Are we connecting with our friends? There's so much of this that we need to do. And when you don't do it that way for long enough, the body finds will tell you hey you're doing it wrong and it'll let you know when that happens and I think this is this is really kind of that point where I think a lot of us look at like middle-aged or midlife crisis and we go oh what happened to that individual that person went as hard as they could in the wrong direction for as long as they could and they just had their wake-up call they can't do it that way anymore and I connect with people and I see so many amazing people doing so many amazing things and growing from this space right that chapter has closed for them and they're moving on to the next phase of it And that's where you have to go. Let me ask you. So when you finally, so you got to this point, how did you shift? And and your podcast is called 1033. So I want my audience to check it out. But how did you shift and what are you doing now? Because I love what you're doing. There's not enough. um, And I would assume the resources for officers in Canada or United States, I, I don't believe they're probably there. Can you touch on that? And not, and I don't want to go like get anyone in trouble, but I'm just trying to understand what, how hard that must be seeing the things that officers see on a daily basis and not having the support without turning to like addiction or whatever it be, um, how to be able to process those things. Yeah. And I mean, it's important to remember that this issue isn't just related to police officers or mm-hmm. paramedics or firefighters or whoever, right? I mean, first responders just go through harder miles in life faster and more intensely. And when when we get to a point in that journey where we need to get help, we'll always reach out one minute too late right? We're going to be hitting crisis. And I've really started to see from my perspective as a Mountie that it wasn't until I was in the depths of addiction was I finally willing to acknowledge and then reach out and have trust for the organization that had done so many things wrong to me and had kind of instilled that belief that they weren't actually there for me 
And that's what I believed right after going through all the trauma and dealing with and working with other other Mounties or cops who are also struggling, right? Because so many of us are struggling. I think the stats are like 50% are diagnosed with PTSD. And I mean, you could easily argue that could be 100%. And that because really, you don't get diagnosed with PTSD until you hit maybe year 5, 10, 15. So the supports that are there are very much designed for the person that uh, is going to be usually getting to a point uh, where they're in crisis and we're not catching people before that. And there's a massive gap in our approach to mental health. And that applies to, I would think, to all layers of society. When do we go and get help? We go and get help when things are really bad. Oh God, yeah. Right? We don't go and get yeah. We don't go and get help when things are just starting to get warm. No, I mean some people do. I think it's now it's turning into not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, I would say the majority of people, but like, are there things that you're doing now? Because we're always going to need, we're always going to need firefighters and police officers and first responders. You know, paramedics that have to see these horrific things. Is there anything that you have like plans on doing or you are doing besides your amazing podcast to try and change things? I think the biggest thing that I've learned about this journey, and I'm sure you know this too, mm-hmm. is, and I mean the, the, the title of your podcast, Judging Megan, when you can finally get to a point where you can absolutely remove all judgment from your life, where you literally cannot assume you know someone or judge them for whatever it is you're going or they're going through, you can truly be there to support them. And I kind of picked up on this lesson early on in my recovery with sobriety of, you know, how do I do this? Who am, who, who do I need to be so that I can do this? So the right value comes forward, right? Because you really have to ask yourself some hard questions when you start podcasting, right? You've got to be good. Like you've got to make sure that you can talk about what you need to talk about and you're vulnerable and you're authentic because if you don't, people pick up on that stuff and they're not going to stick around. So in order to run a, like a really successful podcast, you got to be willing to put the work in yourself. That's just how it goes. So I think for me, yeah, that's kind of how I framed my podcast. Uh, I have a website and I'm starting to layer in different things into the website to help support people that are still in the service just so that we can kind of plant seeds right with them. You know, cops are very stubborn. If you come out and say, hey, you should go get help. They're always going to be like, yeah, man, like go pound sand. Mm -hmm. Like, don't tell me these things. And especially men too. Like if you tell a man, go get help, what are they going to do? They're going to be like, they're going to blame you. They're going to be like, I'm fine. You're not well. <laughs> you know, that's that natural knee-jerk reaction that happens, right? That denial. And, uh, you know, all I can do right now from the outside now, uh, now that I'm retired, is just look back to serving them. Because police officers, again, are, they're incredible people. Do they make mistakes? Yes. I do, I do know that uh, every single one of the, them, though, that gets hired, gets hired because they have good hearts and they're there for the right reason. I think a lot of people along the way, though, unfortunately get sick from, from trauma. And these are some of the things that just unfortunately happens. You guys had some very significant events over the last three years mm-hmm. where cops have done something uh, neglectful or harmful uh, while interacting with others that have contributed to that person's death. Right. And I mean, we all look at cops and go, are they dirty? Are they not dirty? To be honest with you, I don't think it's about that. I think it's how well are our cops. And if they're not being supported in the roles that they're doing right now, 
then someone needs to step up and support them. And I know on the way out, uh, I was specifically rocked by uh, two cops had taken their lives as I was leaving and entering into sobriety. And I thought to myself, you know what? I could never live with myself if I knew a good friend that was still serving was going to take his own life because of his own struggle. And I had learned a lot by that point. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do something and give back to them because they deserve it. Nathan, I love everything you're doing. Um, I say a lot. And I love what you said, too, about podcasting. Sometimes it's not easy. You know, you understand, especially if you're talking about the topics that we're talking about where you're like, oh, okay, so it's like I have to be in the right mindset and it's and it's costly to run a podcast. And there's all these things that I don't think people understand that really goes into it. And I'm not saying I'm like healing the world or like solving like you know, anything really, but the way that I like to see it is it's like building a fire and you building a fire within the, you know, like the police force and first responders, the way that men feel like they should be reaching out to somebody because they have addiction problems or what it stems from. They have PTSD. You're starting a fire and that little fire will spread and then eventually, hopefully, with enough of these conversations with you and I or whoever else we're interviewing, people start to go, well, I guess it's okay. I guess it's okay to talk about this. You know, this, these shootings like that I just brought up earlier, one of them was just a man that, like, snapped, you know? Like, he was, he was a, a mushroom picker. He was picking some kind of strawberry picker or something and you know, in Northern California. And from what I understand, he just snapped. So at the core of all of this that I say on a weekly basis is our mental health, you know, the homeless issue. It stems from mental health. 90% of these people are either bipolar, on drugs. What do you think people on drugs, why are they on drugs? I mean, like, really? I mean, people just need to start really focusing on this at higher levels in the government, and it should be trickling down, and it drives me crazy that I feel like I'm talking, like, every week about this, and nothing changes. Um, But the, the thing that always gives me hope is when I meet somebody like you, And we connect and then we go, you know what, like what you're doing matters and what I'm doing matters. And the people that listen and then they try to do something that matters, then all of this matters. And we are doing like little changes and these little changes will hopefully spread into big changes. So I am just beyond grateful to you for what you do. And Um, I just think it's fascinating. And like I said, anytime I can get a man to come on the podcast and just be real, it's like, thank you. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful to you. So thank you again, Nathan. Yeah, you're very welcome. And I just want to piggyback on that thought because one, my, my heart and my mind goes to, uh, I thank you as well for doing what you're doing. I know I came across your platform and I saw some of the things that you were doing and I I was right away. I was like, this is my lady. 
right? Uh-huh. Her and I can get together and we can smash out a great podcast, yeah. right? We can go there. I know we can. And uh, I want to thank you for believing in yourself because I know along the way you also had to acknowledge and address some of those very real fears of branching out and, you know, challenging yourself and talking about some of the hard things that you go through. And we we aren't doing this for fame or popularity or any or the money or and trust me, I haven't really made much money anyway. You will. I can already tell you're going to make money doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you're you. You're good at it. I can tell but, by your voice everything. But uh, you're wrong. I do do this for the fame. I am joking. I don't. That's that was a joke. <laughs> I had to. I had to just interrupt but you. You absolutely. So it, death, death of ego. I'd love to come back and talk about death of ego, right? Mm-hmm. We have to go through that in order to be vulnerable. But why we're doing this, and again, this is something that we learn the hard way when we're in our moments of like the deepest mar- uh, depths of despair and rock bottom and the pain and suffering that's there. And we may be looking at divorce and collapsing the family and running from everything. And it looks disgusting. But when we can actually acknowledge and address why we're feeling that way and those feelings actually stem back to, you know, the very early years of our lives, we then all of a sudden start to see how we can fix ourselves. And you and I are no different than we're just people out here that are, you know, I don't want to call myself a leader or you a leader, but we're just leading by example and saying, this is how you do it. This is what the hard work looks like. You got to get on with your life. You got to be real with yourself. You got to talk about your shit. You got to own your shit. You got to work on it. And you got to do the hard work and challenge yourself to break those cycles, those behavioral patterns. So again, I, I mean, you're, you're further ahead down the podcast road than I am. But again, I applaud you as well, because I do know you have some phenomenal people on your end that their lives are better because of you. And you've shared your story. And that is so powerful, sharing your story. So encouraging others to do it. You and I will stand by that all day long. And we'll do that through sharing yours. Well, I, when we're going we're gonna to talk offline right now because I have some ideas for you. Because um, I talk to a lot of podcasters and authors and that kind of stuff. And sometimes I go, Rick Wary was an author I had on recently. And I'm like, Rick, you're supposed to be the to be able to do this and meet somebody like you every week so in closing um everybody thank you so much by the time you're hearing this my book my chapter in my book her badass story three so i have a chapter in a book coming out will be available on amazon i'm going to be posting about that in the next month because this will be out in february um and i just want to tell you all thank you so much for your this on YouTube and be happy by making other people happy. Thank you, Nathan, again for coming on. Yeah, much love. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable. With stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality. 
for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.